The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Love doesn't end just because we don't see each other. Doesn't it? People go on loving God, don't they, all their lives without seeing him. That's not my kind of love. Maybe there's no other kind. Hi, this is Jack Wilson. A reconsideration of the great 20th century British writer Graham Greene. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the show. I'm not sure there's a writer who has been more important to me than Graham Greene. But why? What does that mean? And is it even still true? I was wrestling with these thoughts. So I undertook a reading project, revisiting Greene's novels. And then I called my comrade-in-arms, who also happens to be the president of the Literature Supporters Club. So without further ado, here is a conversation about Graham Greene. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello? Mike. This is Jack. I need your help. I'm thinking about Graham Greene. What's the problem? I think it's time to reconsider, Mr. Green. You know, I've I've always been a big fan of his. Long time he was kind of my favorite writer, but uh I don't know. Do you ever do this? Do you ever do you ever put an author somewhere in your memory bank and then decide you have to revisit him later? You know, I usually don't reread the person unless I know in advance that I'm I'm not gonna be disappointed. So <laughs> Right. That's the fear, right? It, it, Yes, in that in that in that vein, I've never gone back to the Algonquin Round Table. <laughs> Good idea. So, I mean, one example. Right. Um, Dorothy Parker would probably be okay. Her poetry, yeah, her poetry stands up. I'm not sure that uh, Robert Benchley is is going to hold up the way he did for you and when, when you were coming out of college. Yeah, Dorothy Parker's. Poetry holds up. See, she has a very short poem. Um, Men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses, and the the title of that poem is called "News Item." <laughs> yeah, that's good. She's got a few stories yeah. too. Anyway, let's talk about Graham Greene. So, here's my history with Graham Greene. I don't know how much of him that you've read, but we can get into that as I as we steam along here. So, I first encountered Graham Greene when I was in Taiwan. I was there, you probably remember, I was there with my cousin who was about 10 years older than me, and he was a world traveler, and I was aspiring to be just like him. And he saw me coming out of college and the English major side of me with carrying my suitcase full of books everywhere, and how I was always reading novels. And he said something really interesting that always kind of stuck with me. He said, you know, I used to believe, you read a lot of novels, and I used to believe in novels. I used to think I would really get something out of them. And then I just realized 
that fiction just wasn't important to me. I wasn't getting anything out of it. And he gave the example of Updike, and he had read he had read all of the rabbit books. And he said, you know, I read all of those. I spent all this time with John Updike and, and Rabbit, the character Rabbit. And the only thing I remember is there was a, a point where he got old and he was nostalgic for the days when he could piss in a stream, when it would just come out in a stream. <laughs> and then he said, what what can fiction be? What what does literary fiction even mean if that's the only thing I can remember out of, you know, reading all of those pages and pages of John Updike uh John Updike's rabbit books. And so I kind of worried a little bit that I would, you know, as I got older and jaded, that I might uh, feel the same way and that I would go through the same experience. And then just as I was about to leave, after I left Taiwan, I went on a, a, a trip around the world. And he said, you know, the one exception to that is Graham Greene. He said, when there's traveling, when, when I'm traveling, there's nothing better than Graham Greene. And so I kind of took that to heart. Um, it was not an author I was familiar with. And so as I started backpacking around Asia, I started seeking out Graham Greene novels. It was They were easy to find. There was a lot of copies of them floating around the, the paperback exchanges and used bookstores. And something about Graham Greene appeals to people who are travelers in corrupt countries or impoverished countries. And, you know, it's kind of Greene's big setting is these, mm -hmm. you know, far off places, uh, Mexico and Cuba and Vietnam and Liberia. And, and then when he was there, he would go into the jails and the brothels and the leper colonies. And, and I think there's, there's something about reading him when you're traveling. If you're feeling that way yourself, you know, you land in a country, you start encountering, um, maybe the customs official or the hotel clerk or, people who are almost antagonistic toward you just because you're trying to get something from them, which might just be a, a night at a hotel. But, you know, you feel like the system is a little bit rigged. There's things going on you don't understand. And that's the kind of atmosphere or theme that often comes across from Graham Greene. And then he also has larger, large-scale themes like, you know, the way politics is, geopolitics is interacting between uh, the West and and countries like this, and you just feel like he's really tapped into something, and he's he's very observant and very clear sighted, and I think that's probably why it appealed to me uh, when I was traveling. But I don't know, is that the kind of thing you take when you travel? Well, I was thinking, well, as listening to you, to you describe Green and traveling, you know, his novels, and I've only read um, three or four of them, his novels. Not only does the setting change, but I feel like the, the, the novels are very different from each other. Right. And he, he almost orients himself depending on the setting. He, he orients himself differently. And I think that's the thing that is so uh, entrancing when you're reading Green. Right. Um, you, you feel like, you know, it, it's Graham Green. He's going to put you at ease, but it's also like, an entirely different setting. And, that, and I feel like that's what you search for. You, well, I search for when I travel, you know, because you don't want adventure. I mean, you can't count on there being adventure, but you want the promise of adventure. You, you want to see what, how different the country can be right. uh, within certain confines of safety. Right. Um, so it, 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 it's almost like if you read Green without traveling, it's like you're traveling. So reading Green while you're traveling is like double the traveling. Right. And when I, when I travel, it really depends if, I mean, it depends. If, if I'm traveling alone, I'll take a book like Herman Hesse's, you know, Glass Bead Gate. But if I'm traveling with people, with other people, I'll usually bring rereads or oh. novellas. <laughs> um, that's interesting so why what uh what about being with other people makes you is it because you you won't be able to to give your full attention undivided attention to a something you've are, you haven't read before yeah they, well they'll interrupt you <laughs> you'll be in the middle of a good scene and you'll be interrupted <clears throat> and then you'll remember like oh these are the people i'm traveling with and these are you know i, I should be interrupted right so the thing that i was 
concerned about and the reason why I'm calling and why I wanted to discuss this with you is it's been a while since I've read Graham Greene and I've kind of held him up as one of my favorite authors, although as the years have gone by and I've traveled less, um, I've sort of wondered if we've moved past Graham Greene, if, if I've moved past him. Mm-hmm. So let me just go through some of the details of Graham Greene's life. A lot of this I kind of half remembered and, and did a little research to bolster just so I could sort of separate in my mind what I was remembering from the myths that maybe I had half remembered, although it turned out that there were a lot of myths that I either didn't remember or had never known that were much more fantastical than anything about him, <laughs> about him that I actually was remembering. Um, so he was born in England in 1904. His mother was Robert Louis Stevenson's cousin, which I think was probably uh, more important than people often think. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson is kind of the classic adventure yarn spinner um, and kidnapped in Treasure Island and all of that. And and I think Graham Greene always had a taste for that and always resorts to that. You know, he, he always wrote what he called entertainments and thought of things like plot right. and and pace and and you know the effect that those things had on the reader and i don't think there's a book of his that really is overly long or meandering it's always um it's always well paced even when it's more of a novel of ideas i think that maybe comes from his his early uh, love for these rollicking robert louis stevenson tales and others his father was the headmaster of his school and Green was just miserable in school. He attempted suicide several times. He underwent uh, psychoanalysis, which was kind of new and unusual at the time. And I, you know, you know, I, I, I read that. You know, when you mentioned the suicide, it reminded me. I read that he used to play Russian roulette by himself Ooh. with his brother's pistol. Wow! And he used to like to see how close he was. And one day, he was off by one chamber, and he stopped. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, you know, it, it's kind of easy to think of him as this sort of, um, I don't know, almost establishment figure just because he was so successful and he wrote so many novels and he's he's kind of, it's hard not to associate him with the, the British Empire in a way because he just of based on the time that he was living and the the 30s and 40s and, and sort of the heyday or the final heyday of the the Raj and all of that. But he was actually quite a uh, iconoclast and rebel, and he really was kind of an edgy and and miserable guy in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he joined the Communist Party in 1922, very briefly. Um, and then in 1926, there was this sort of seminal moment of his life. So he was 22 years old. He was engaged, and his fiancée was Catholic. And so he started out talking to a priest just to kind of please her and, um, you know, I guess demonstrate that he was empathetic to her views and her beliefs. And he kind of fell head over heels for Catholicism and to a point where he said, looking back on it, he said, you know, I could have come, become a priest in those days. It was, I, I basically was at that point. I don't think that lasted too long. And the, the funny thing about his his conversion that always cracked me up, this this seems very Graham Greene-like, is that the priest who uh, he talked to, who ended up um, kind of selling him on Catholicism, was actually a guy who had spent 10 years, he was a former actor, and he had spent 10 years playing villains on the London stage, which... Um, <laughs> you know, you know, one can only imagine if you have a 10-year career of, of only playing villains that he, you know, he must have had an appearance and a voice and, and everything that was probably, I'm picturing him as being kind of demonic, um, which seems like just the sort of priest who could really, uh, who could really make the pitch to Graham Greene. Right. <laughs> I mean, the stories of Greene's life, it's, it's hard to imagine anyone packing more into life than he did. He wrote 30... 30 books, something like 30 books. And he sort of famously wrote 500 words a day and then stopped. And some people said it was exactly 500 words a day, which is a little hard to imagine. Although I have tried it, you know, inspired by green. I've, 
I've tried that myself. And I realized you can actually finish a book pretty quickly as long as you don't have to revise the 500 words. That's the problem with it is uh, apparently <laughs> Green would, you know, he'd write 500 words a day and 90 days later he'd have a 45,000 word novel, which is easy enough if you know exactly what you're doing for those 500 words. And he, his first book was a book of poetry I haven't read. I don't know if you have. Um, it's called Babbling April. No. <laughs> Apparently, not many people have read it. I don't know if it's even available. I suppose it's on eBay or something. But I always kind of wondered if the title was a self-parody of of uh, the poems. Um, I think it it was roundly panned. Green was always funny about his writing. There was, you know, whenever there was a contest, some newspaper would run a contest to parody Graham Greene's style, and Green would take a pseudonym and he would enter uh, the contest. And <laughs> once, he, once he won honorable men mention, and once he won second prize. <laughs> of course, he was recruited for MI6 by his sister, which was something I hadn't remembered that his sister actually worked there before he did. I did remember that he worked for Kim Philby, who was uh, this notorious spy and, and double agent in the Cold War, who was actually working for the KGB, and he later defected to Moscow. And Graham Greene, of course, considered him a friend and wrote the preface to his memoir. Wow. And then this is this is maybe my favorite story of his, <laughs> that he he once wrote a film review. He wrote a lot of film reviews. He was a very early expert, I think, in cinema and wrote a lot of screenplays that were very successful. And he once wrote a film review of a Shirley Temple movie, and this was when Shirley Temple was nine years old. Mm -hmm. And he in the in the review he referred to her dubious coquetry which he said appealed to, <laughs> quote, middle-aged men and clergymen. And tw tw <laughs> 20th Century Fox uh, sued for libel, and they won. And the magazine where the review was published went bankrupt as a result. And Graham Greene, wow. in, in the middle of it, Graham Greene was... Uh, uh, fled the country so he wouldn't have to uh, appear during the trial. So he went to Mexico, and while he was in Mexico, he wrote The Power and the Glory, which is often considered his best novel. So he, he had this this sort of knack for, uh, I don't know, narrow escapes and, and landing on his feet and, um, you know, just a just an incredible life. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I feel like um, it seems like with writers, we have a pretty low bar for what's glamorous. I mean, we're... we're you know, readers are so nosy and desperate to read something scintillating right. about an author, and usually there isn't. It's like somebody, you know, had had like six dogs. Yeah, yeah, and that's and suddenly, you know, that's that's worth writing a a New York Times magazine piece about or something about the yeah. dog lover. Or my favorite is when they say like, "Oh, and this writer had no kids," and it's like. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but it, it, that's supposed to be so revelatory. Like they had no kids. Like you know, Julian Barnes and Jonathan Friends and don't have kids. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was looking at my copy at End of the Fair, and I found this quote, um, which I think is pretty in interesting in, co in the context of the fact that he had such an adventuresome life. He wrote, um, well, the character's voice. It says. So much in writing depends on the superficiality of one day. I feel like he, you know, for him to say that his days were superficial right. Right. is pretty amazing that he somehow found routines and, you know, quiet time in the life he was leading. Right. Okay. So when I was reading him in the 90s, when I was first starting out my travels and everything, I, I was trying to look back on the things that I remembered from that period. And the first thing that jumped out at me was how readable Graham Greene was. I'm going to read a quote here from Evelyn Waugh, which I'm not sure I understand, but he <laughs> writes, um, Greene's style was not a specifically literary style at all. The words of the words are functional, devoid of sensuous attraction of ancestry and of independent life. Now, I get what he means by functional, and I think I get what he means by sensuous attraction, which I'm 
it's easy to contrast him with someone like Updike or Nabokov or somebody who's kind of writing in a high style. Independent life seems a little bit cruel. <laughs> and I don't know what he means at all by the words are devoid of ancestry. Do you? I know you've read more Evelyn Waugh than me. Do you know what what he could be talking about there? I, I mean, I, that's the first time I've heard that quote. Um, and Evelyn Waugh is very quotable. I think, he, you know, he, he's one of the most quotable writers. Right. Um, but I, well, I think what he's trying to say is that Graham Greene did not feel um, wedded or obligated to the English tradition uh, right, of literature and books, because, you know, when Evelyn, Evelyn Waugh's books and um, even like Christopher Isherwood, you know, their fiction um, uh, is always kind of tipping their cap to England right. and English literature. And I feel like Graham Greene, just by dint of the fact that he traveled all over, um, it really didn't feel like he had to uh, follow this line of English writers. And right. I mean, Evelyn Waugh, you know, writes only about England. And Christopher Isherwood, other than Berlin stories, has said, and a couple of, when he was in his 60s and became a hippie, said a couple of books in California, but the majority of his books are set in London and, you know, Oxford. So, and you know, when I reread Graham Greene um, in preparation for this podcast, I was surprised by how um, how different his language is compared to Isherwood. Because I've read Isherwood, I've read all of Isherwood and most of Waugh, and you know, like it, there's there's something about the way British the Brits speak that's both verbose and elegant at the same time. Right. Um, like Evelyn Waugh says in Brideshead Revisited, he says, it is typical of Oxford University to start the new year in autumn. And it, <laughs> it, it's almost like a, it's a ridiculous sentence, but he's aware <laughs> of it. Right. You know? And Isherwood, Isherwood has so many lines like that, too. I mean, Isherwood comes later, but he, he has a line uh, in Christopher and his kind. He, he read, I doubt if one ever accepts a belief until one urgently needs it. Those are great examples. And I, I think I see what you mean. And I think I, I see what, what, uh, what Evelyn Waugh means by ancestry. It's almost as if he recognized that when he and, and his contemporaries other than green sat down to write a novel, they were thinking, you know, we are part of a great tradition that includes, you know, Shakespeare and, and Alexander Pope and and Dryden and and they were sort of tied to carrying on that tradition and and continuing its excellence and you get the feeling that Graham Greene was probably like watching a uh, uh, a James Cagney movie or something or something and <laughs> and just being like you know here's here's the 20th century you know let me uh, let me write in this hard-boiled style almost, or let me follow my ear. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like Graham Greene, he, he doesn't, it, it's almost easy for a Brit to be witty. I mean, and not to make too much of the, I, I know Brits who are bores, so, uh, you know, <laughs> but I, I will say like, you know, like, I, I was looking at End of the Fair, there's uh, one of the, the main character calls um, a, a number and the numbers changed. And the, the person who answers the phone says, you've got the wrong number. And the narrator goes, it had never occurred to me that the small things alter too with time. And I read that and I thought, God, that's such a, that's such a great emotional little moment and nostalgic moment. And I, I feel like a lot of British writers, certainly Waugh, would have said something witty, wittier. Right. And and maybe that was and that would have been the wrong tone there. Right, right. Uh, so a quote that I like a lot better, uh, which which seemed more in line with what I was thinking is came from the Virginia Quarterly Review, and and the the writer said, "Nothing deflects Green from the main business of holding the reader's attention." 
And I really like that, that there would be things out there trying to deflect green and he's warding them all yeah. off and says, you know, nope, I know what needs to go in these 500 words. And it's, it's me and the reader and the reader has, has got a, you know, he's not going to want pretentiousness. He's not going to want confusion or be, you know, impressed by my ability to string words together. I need to just keep going with the pace and the plot and the character which is what I really loved about Graham Greene. And I was glad to see that um, this really held up when I was when I was rereading him recently. I found him to be as readable as ever. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, readability is harder than it seems. I think mean, a lot of people, and myself included, sometimes I, I kind of, you know, part of dismissing the book is saying it's too readable. But... You know, if there's other stuff there, readability is that much harder to pull off. I think readability is hard to pull off. Um, right. So yeah, taking a look at taking a look at his his novels. I mean, the 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 elegance in which he switches scenes mm -hmm. is reminded me, you know, a little bit of film. And um, I know you you know you said he wrote screenplays and. Um, he, he was perhaps ahead of his time in that sense, you know, understanding um, that he wasn't going to write um, a 600-page novel, but he was adhering to a sense of pace that was maybe you know a bit modern. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. On the other hand, he's probably not the guy where you'd really want to read all of his books straight through. You know, I think he's probably one of those authors who really benefited from coming out with a book every year or two, and and people would greet it, uh, you know, having the last one they had read had sort of worn off, and they were looking forward to the next one. That 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 can be that reminds me as you were speaking of Dickens and the way you can pick up his books and feel like. You know, you're 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 in the presence of another person. Right. That, that's the feeling you get with those kind of books. And you know, um, I mean, I think that's what I'm searching for when I reread. Um, right. Is, a lot of people read because you know to find out what happens, and they want to read new books. I actually like to know exactly what happens, but like to see if I remember how I initially felt when I read it. Right. Um, so sometimes I think maybe I'm I'm not the ideal reader for <laughs> for, 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 for um, you know new books. Right. But, <laughs> but, you but, have to, but <laughs> if you don't have a new book once in a while, you'll never get uh, you'll never get <laughs> no books will ever become old. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Graham Greene. Like anybody that you know, you, you read when you're younger. When you revisit, you, you, you sort of wonder: Is he or she an essential writer? And you know, clearly Graham Greene is not important as Virginia Woolf or Joyce. But it, it, it seems like the question shouldn't matter as long as you feel like they're they're ahead of you narratively. And intellectually, right. And so, I mean, as I get older, and I, when I reread, sometimes I think like, okay, if, if I'm in the mood for English manners, I'm going to read Evelyn Waugh or P.D. Woodhouse. Yep. But if, but if I'm in the mood for emotional backstabbing and longing, I'll read Isherwood. And so, it's almost like Graham Greene is not really British enough for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right right well that that's interesting i think that's probably i haven't thought of it that way i associate him so much with being british but i think yeah he's a very particular kind of of brit i guess the sort of um the you know he was an outsider uh wherever he yeah. was including britain you know it's interesting because i'm i'm about to bring up uh george orwell who's another guy who's sort of in some ways, kind of the, the, I don't know, diametric opposite of, of Graham Greene. And this is what was interesting to me as I was going through. The thing that kind of scared me 
about going back to Graham Greene is I worried that the Catholicism was going to drive me crazy or that I just wouldn't find it that interesting. You know, the wrestling with Catholicism, I remembered kind of being interested in it at the time, not being a Catholic myself or a lapsed Catholic or a, a potential Catholic or anything like that. But even so, I remember kind of enjoying reading or finding it illuminating to read Green's own uh, spiritual experience and his wrestling with Catholics. Of course, he's, or Catholicism, of course, he's was known as kind of a nasty Catholic, uh, where he, <laughs> the sort of Catholic who would have affairs and visit prostitutes, and he kind of made the whiskey priest a, a staple of fiction about um, Catholic themes and I heard once that he actually met with the Pope who told him, ah, don't worry about the critics, <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. It's fantastic that the Pope would say that, but also that, of course, that would happen to Graham Greene. <laughs> Just meet with the Pope. So Orwell, I think, was offended by Graham Greene's Catholicism and the way he used yeah. it. And he he sort of described it as being kind of a... a almost like a snobbery and that I think his quote was hell in Graham Greene is sort of a high class nightclub entry, which <laughs> entry to which is reserved for Catholics only since the others are too ignorant to be held guilty. And, you know, Orwell wanted everybody to develop their own sense of morality and everyone to get past religion and just look at the, the humanity. And I would probably tend to be more on that side of the spectrum than on the Catholic side of the spectrum. But what surprised me as I was rereading re Graham Greene is how I think Orwell just kind of got Greene wrong. And Greene actually, his view of Catholicism was so strange and eclectic. And in the end, I, I feel like it really was closer to what Orwell probably had in mind, um, where it really was based mm. on humanity and the human impulse. And what I see in Greene reminds me of, you know, Green himself called himself a, a Catholic agnostic or a, even sometimes a Catholic atheist. And what I see in Green reminded me of something I heard a writer say at a party once, and he said, you know, I'm an atheist, but I like prayer. And that always kind of stuck with me. And, and I think Graham Green would say something similar, that it's, you know, whatever yeah. he thinks of God or belief in God or whether there is a God or not a God or whether doctrine is you know the sacraments are real or or catholicism as a institution is a positive or negative force in the world he would look at the people around him and their impulse toward religion and their yearning for it and what they were taking from it or what they were uh angry about or or what they were confused about but just that that religion was always there and it was always part of people's belief system and i think he it, it's where almost i think you could almost say it's where green showed his deepest uh respect and and admiration for humanity was in the religious impulse of worshipers or people who were you know turning from faith or conflicted about their faith and yeah. that's what came across to me in my reread which uh, really kind of put Green and his Catholicism in a different perspective for me. Yeah, they, they, you know, there's a quote in End of the Fair where the narrator says, I said to God, so that's it. I begin to believe in you, and if I believe in you, I shall hate you. And, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, the, 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 the relationship to God is, 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 is very complicated. But let me, let me try to defend Orwell for a second. I'd, I think what Orwell was probably reacting to is the fact that no one of Green's literary stature was even tackling religion. And maybe I'm just speaking off the cuff, but, um, you know, they, writing about religion and writing about any kind of dogma um, is, you know, you know, kind of boring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and to, and to pull it off, um, requires um, even even any attempt to make it complicated can can seem uh, overwrought this kind of tortured soul has become such a cliche but I think Graham Greene um, 
you know, his his complicated take on religion, you know, I, I don't think Orwell even could reach that point because he, he was a bit shocked to see religion in, in the books. I mean, Orwell, you know, for all of his openness and open-mindedness, you know, could be a little bit of a prude. I mean, um, he was very English in certain ways. I mean, right. I remember reading in a biography by Jeffrey Miller, Jeffrey Myers of Orwell that um, Orwell um, was absolutely freaked out when uh, a lover of his suggested that he put on a condom. (laughs) And I, I, I was, it woke me up so much reading that because I was thinking like Orwell, (laughs) this, this, this man who was supposed to be so, uh, intellectual and uh, open-minded. Yeah. Um, and I just thought he—he just—he's just a brute. I mean, he's just an English brute, like the rest <laughs> of them. It's uh, it's interesting. V.S. Pritchett credited Green with bringing evil back into fiction, and I'm not sure Orwell uh, would. You know, which which is interesting. Pritchett said it's been absent since Henry James and Graham Greene brought it back. You know. Or it'd be interesting to think to hear what Orwell would have to say about that. I think he would probably say that evil was kind of a construct, and that it was not something that should be <laughs> handed to us by by religion, or or that the priests shouldn't be defining it, but we should be defining it based on our analysis of what people were doing to one another. So that if evil right. existed, it would exist outside the realm of heaven and hell and and god and satan but in the you know our assessment of uh, a monster like hitler i don't know if orwell I mean, ever so, spoke about evil not i mean not not that i can recall i feel like he was sort of very one of his moves was to take something that people were disgusted by and um to reveal the humanity behind it and the the, the workings behind something that at first blush seemed, you know, awful and disgusting. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if, if Orwell, if, you know, when I think of which, which of them um, spoke more to the public at the time, Graham Greene was writing so much religion mattered so much to so many people. Right. Um, it, it's, it's a little, it's unfortunate that Orwell was so dismissive. Yeah, there's there's a sort of tendency in authors like Orwell to kind of, they come to that point themselves, and then they sort of see it as like, well, in, in 10 years, everybody's going to be thinking the way I do, and so you're all just, you know... You're you're behind the times and impossibly retrograde. And then, you know, 50 years later, 100 years later, it's still going strong. You know, there's still plenty of people who have this impulse. And I think Green is probably closer to where a novelist maybe should be as far as not being mm-hmm. condescending or dismissive about religion and actually taking people's, uh, even if not accepting faith, wholeheartedly taking people's impulse toward it or need for it or longing for it, taking that seriously. And there's a great example uh, in The Power and the Glory, and I'm going to talk about a few of the works that I reread and and the ones that really held up for me. And The Power and the Glory is one of them. And this is a good example of what I mean by uh, by Green's um, Catholic agnosticism or his conflicted Catholicism. So the novel set in Mexico, and this is during a time when socialists had outlawed the church, and the character is walking through Mexico, and he notices an odd grove of crosses, and it's described as standing up blackly against the sky, some as high as 20 feet, some not much more than eight. And the character sees this as tangible proof of, quote, the dark and magical heart of the faith and its resilience. And I kind of see where Green is coming from there. I, I agree with that sentiment. It's it's like the um, sometimes you can feel that from religious music or stained glass windows, or you just feel the tradition and the the um, you know everything that goes behind it. All of the all of the people 
who have believed over time and the things that they've done and, and just all the tradition and everything. And in this case, it was sort of the, you know, there's no reason for people when a church has been outlawed to, to put up this, this set of crosses, but there's something about it that means, you know, this belief is not going to die that I think uh, really appealed to green just on a human level. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I mean, it'd be, I'd be curious to know how, you know, people who have strong faith because I don't, but how they, how they read him and, you know, cause end of the fair, which I'm sure we'll get to, you know, I was reading a review of it that says that, you know, it's hard to remember the last, and it's hard to remember a book since Paradise Lost that had God as a as such a convincing character. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking, like, when's the last time someone got compared to Milton? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. When was the last time? That so. might be the first and only time that has ever happened. Okay, so one more example from The Power and the Glory, which is this great scene where this woman is in prison for having a holy picture in her house, and she encounters a priest. This is the great whiskey priest um, in The Power and the Glory who's in prison for having a forbidden bottle of brandy. And the woman objects because some prisoners are copulating in the corner of one of the cells, and the priest gives her this great speech, and her response is, is kind of equally great. And uh, so I'll read the quote here. The priest says, quote, Saints talk about the beauty of suffering. While we are not saints, you and I, suffering to us is just ugly, stench and crowding and pain. That is beautiful in that corner to them. It needs a lot of learning to see things with a saint's eye. And then the, the woman is shocked, and she responds, I can see you're a bad priest. You sympathize with these animals. But I think as, as a reader, at least when I'm reading this, you know, I feel like I uh, like the priest is doing exactly what he should be doing. And Graham Greene is as well. And that's sort of the example we all should be setting. You know, we all should be following that this is uh, consistent with the teachings of Jesus to to, you know, love your neighbor and, and who are we to judge and, and people in glass houses and, you know, all of those things. And it, it also just strikes me as part of the ordinary human decency that, that uh, Orwell describes. I was thinking this would be fine with Orwell until you brought up that, uh, that anecdote that he was shocked about wearing a condom. And now maybe I have to rethink Orwell and his attitude toward sexual encounters. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on from that to the end of the affair, which I have to say, I have for a long time, I've said that this is my favorite novel. For a while, I was rereading it every year. I don't know why it touched such a chord in me. I think it's the way the plot works and, and how everything kind of works together and it explores such deep themes with such striking characters. And it's, it's simple, but it, um, it kind of gives me a lot. There's a, a, a lot that comes out of it, even though it, it is a, a pretty straightforward book. It's also a fantastic film. It's been made into a film a couple of times, but the one I like is with Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore, and it's it's got a great soundtrack, and there's a lot of of great uh, cinematic scenes with, you know, it's, I think of it almost being like a blue, um, there's sort of a blue tinge to everything. There's a lot of rain, a lot of gray and Green, of course, himself is very cinematic. He's, I mentioned before, he wrote all the, the screenplays that he did. And the plot of The End of the Affair is just, it's simple, but it's kind of ingenious. Um, I'll try not to, to spoil things um, and give away the ending, but I'll just kind of give you the the way the, the plot clicks into motion here. So it's during World War II, and the narrator, who's a guy named Maurice, has an affair with a a deeply religious woman and the character actually was patterned after a real life uh, American with whom Green was having an affair and I read one description of her from one of Green's biographers who described her as an American beauty who was as besotted with theology as she was sexually insatiable which uh, seems like you know if there's one woman on the planet for Graham Green to 
to be drawn to like like a magnet. It just sounds like it would be Catherine Walston. <laughs> so then uh, there's a it's during the Blitz, the German Blitz, and during a bombing, uh, the, the Maurice's lover Helen prays to God that she will stop having the affair if only he saves Maurice. And then uh, Maurice survives the bombing, and Helen decides to keep her end of the deal. And so she ends the affair in order to keep her promise to God. And then afterwards, she dies, and Maurice falls into a jealous rage against God. And he, he sort of accuses God of running away with his lover, that he's, he's taken uh, green, or greens. He's taken Maurice's lover from him. But what's so beautiful about the book is the way that it's such a simple thing, if you think about it. I mean, in, in some ways, there are some elements of the plot that get a little fantastical. There's kind of a, a miracle that occurs it's at one point um, or a, a possible miracle. But even though it, it seems like this is, you know, a, a giant coincidence, it actually is something that you could imagine happening, that it's, it's the kind of thing I think a lot of people do when they get in a jam is, you know, they suddenly pray to God or they bargain with God or they make a deal. You know, I'll never stay up all night and get drunk again or whatever it is, the bargaining that people do with God or their their personal deity that they're praying to. You can also imagine then what happens if you actually believe in that God that you would want to keep your promise. How do we blame her when what she's done is just... She's just been basically devout, and she's kept her promise. Those are both good things, I think. And praying for his survival and, and taking it seriously and, and wanting to do nothing more. She's depriving herself of her own happiness because of what she believes saved him. And all of this raises really interesting questions to me. I think Maurice's reaction is uh, sufficiently close to my own that he would just be find it unfathomable that she would actually feel like she had to keep her promise and be angry about it. But then you already talked about the quote where he basically then in some ways decides that he needs to believe in God to hate because it's so important to him to want to hate God that he, he has to believe in God, which is actually a victory for God in a way, right? That he's, he's, uh, he's suddenly a, a believer, if only to hate. Uh, so the whole thing is just... I, I find it, you know, it's a great read. I guess in the end, Mike, I just decided that maybe this is just always going to be my favorite novel. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I really enjoyed it when I read it. Okay, so we're, we're kind of running late on time here, so I'm going to skip quickly over The Quiet American, which is another good book that I enjoyed uh, that I thought was still worth reading. A lot of people reread this uh, during the the war in Afghanistan and Iraq um, of the the post 9-11 wars, uh, just a, a sort of tale of an American um, in Vietnam who was destroying the country in order to save it, which uh, resonated with a lot of people. American idealism is kind of exposed in that book. The thing that amazes me about that book and which is which is uh, to Green's credit is how early it was written. It was uh, written in 1955, which is much sooner than I think most people were even aware of what was happening in Vietnam. Let alone that the Americans were about to get themselves entangled in in something that was maybe more, you know, would would kind of haunt them for a while, and that it was their idealism and their beliefs in what they could change about a country that was really going to be their downfall. And of course, with, with Green, it's never that simple. And, and the narrator, actually, in some ways, he's the, the more jaded, cynical, world-weary one. And in some ways, the narrator, even as he sees the American as, as being doomed and the whole project as being doomed, the narrator feels a kind of pang that he himself doesn't have that capacity for uh, idealism and and optimism and uh, I don't know pureness of heart or intentions that he sees in the in the younger American. So that's a good book. Um, that's worth reading. Although uh, I would read the end of the affair first. 
um, and The Power and the Glory second for anybody who's new to Graham Greene. And then I'm going to conclude with what I think might be my favorite film of all time. And I like the film so much that I actually have the uh, Green novella that it's based on. Green wrote both a book and a very short novel and then a screenplay for this movie. It's The Third Man. And it stars uh, Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. Um, and Trevor Howard has a really good part in it. And once again, the it's almost like the end of the affair for me where the plot is just so well constructed and the twists are all uh, perfectly consistent with the characters and it's driving the characters forward and the decisions that the characters are making come out of the plot and, and feed back into the plot. Uh, and by the end, you you see how a plot can really ratchet up the moral stakes and the moral consequences of of individuals actions um i don't know are you familiar with that movie mike you know i i saw it twice probably 20 years ago but i was i was gonna try to watch it recently um but then i got sidetracked by james bond but i, I will i will rewatch it okay so um mike thanks for joining me on the history of literature i really enjoyed this and i was glad to have an ear uh to talk through my thoughts on graham green glad i could help and that's going to do it for this episode of the history of literature my thanks to mike as always for joining me for the conversation about graham green hope you enjoyed it if you have any corrections i did note uh one correction i should make I think I referred to the main character, the main female character in The End of the Affair, as Helen. Her name is Sarah. If you have anything else you want to tell me about, anything on your mind, any authors you think we should reconsider, or any thoughts about Graham Greene, feel free to leave a comment at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com. Or send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the show please leave a rating or a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, or maybe tell your friends. We'd love to have more listeners. And your support, as always, is much appreciated. We're going to be back next time with a very interesting interview with an author who has a book coming out. It's a murder mystery about a female journalist in New York in 1915. That's Rada Vatsal. On the next episode, then... We're going to be taking a look at the New Testament as literature, continuing our journey on the history of literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.